Welcome to the Climate Chronicles podcast by SkySpecs, the show where we explore the latest wind and renewable energy trends, industry expertise, and best practices that can help us deliver the most efficient energy generation in the world. Let's jump into the latest episode. Welcome once again to SkySpecs Climate Chronicles podcast, where we explore some of today's biggest issues facing the renewable energy industry. I'm Josh Goral, the Chief Revenue Officer at SkySpecs, and our guest for today is Chuck Conlon, who is the Vice President of Renewable Energy at DTE. Welcome, Chuck. Hey, thanks, Josh. Great to be here. Yeah, awesome. We're excited to, to have you. So to get us started on the, on the Q&A portion here, um, can you tell us a little bit about, about yourself and, and your journey to your, to your current role? Yeah, um, it's uh, never could have imagined coming out of undergrad a lot of years ago, I'd be where I'm at today, but it's been amazing. Um, I went to one of the federal military academies, the U.S. Merchant Marine Academy, Kings Point, uh, where I was a, a propulsion, um, power and propulsion engineer. Um, and I worked in that field for quite a few years and went back to school uh, for an MBA and went into uh, investment banking. I was a mergers and acquisitions investment banker. I was in New York for several years. Um, where I focused really on financial institutions and energy companies to some degree, but I found that I was really missing the uh, the ability to use my engineering degree uh, as well. So I had this great skill set, and I really enjoyed that aspect of my life and career. So I wanted to find an opportunity where I could bring both my finance background and my uh, power engineering background together, and I uh, ended up at DTE. Um, back in 2005. And in the time since, it's been an amazing journey. Um, I've worked in all kinds of different areas across the company. Uh, DTE's pretty incredible uh, from a business perspective or number of businesses perspective. Folks probably don't realize just how many underlying businesses we have uh, um, in, in Michigan and across the United States. And so I've had the benefit of rotating around and having different leadership roles in each one of those businesses. But renewables is um, where uh, I found myself for probably most of my career since I've been at the company starting in 2008 when PA 295, the uh, Renewable Portfolio Standard, passed. Um, I helped start the renewables business uh, development team there and then ultimately was the director of that team. And then I rotated around the company um, for several years and I came back about three, four years ago where I took over into my current role now and uh, the timing was great because we're really accelerating our growth um, across all aspects of not just renewables but clean energy uh, as well. So we look at things like hydrogen um, potential, you know, small modular nuclear reactors, carbon capture sequestration, um, and uh, so it's been just amazing career. Um, the company's great, given me great opportunities, and uh, absolutely love love it. That's awesome. Yeah, definitely. Uh... Being born and raised in Michigan, very familiar with with DTE, but maybe for those listeners that that may not be as familiar, can you maybe talk a little bit about your clean energy portfolio and maybe just kind of high level like strategy and growth plans over the next few years? Yeah, well, I'm happy to do that. Yeah, so right now we've got a portfolio of around 2,500 to 3,000 megawatts, predominantly wind. Uh, when we started the renewable business back in 2008-2009, um, wind was the the most economic of the renewable technologies, and it was really wind and solar uh, were the two competing technologies. 
And about three, four years ago, um, solar came on parity with wind, with improvements in the technology, um, tracking systems, et cetera. Uh, now solar is, is economic as compared to wind in the state. And so I wouldn't say we have pivoted away from wind. We certainly have not. We, we still have a big wind portfolio. We're still developing wind. We just commissioned the largest wind park in the state uh, two weeks ago, um, the Meridian Wind Park in the middle of the state, 225 megawatts. Um, so wind is still um, core to our renewable energy growth, but solar now is as well. Uh, and so we are right now, we currently have around 400 megawatts of solar under construction. Um, we're out in the market right now, contracting for almost another thousand for 24 and 25. And we'll probably be installing, call it 600 to a thousand megawatts of solar uh, per year between now and 2030. And then uh, there'll be a good percentage of wind as well that we'll, we'll also be developing and building. And most of that is being driven by our voluntary renewable energy program, which is called My Green Power. Uh, it's become the largest voluntary renewable energy program in the country. It is what it sounds like. It allows our customers to sign up voluntarily um, for up to 100% of their energy supply from renewables. And then we go out and we are actually building those assets, it's true additionality. And um, if you're somewhat familiar with us, you'll see we announced a couple of the biggest corporate deals ever in the US with Ford Motor Company, with the utility, um, over 600 megawatts, Stellantis, uh, General Motors. So we've had a great adoption around that. Um, and so that's creating an awful lot of demand and, and certainly putting a lot of um, strain on our ability to build it as fast as we can and affordable at the same time. Yeah, definitely. And commend you and all the work that, that you've done. It's been awesome to see. And um, especially working with, with DTE over, over the last, last few years, it really feels like things have, have, have taken off and, and that's been awesome. So all this growth that you're talking about, is this just in, just in Michigan? It is. Yep. Yeah. So the um, DT, DT energy consists of a number of different portfolio companies I mentioned, one of which is our regulated utility, which is a regulated electric utility in Michigan. And then we have a gas utility in Michigan. Um, but then we have a host of non-regulated businesses that are outside of the state. Uh, and then we also have some renewables that are non-regulated in Michigan as well, but predominantly it's our regulated side of the business that we're building these assets. Yeah, definitely want to get into some of those, uh, like with, with growth, obviously, uh, comes comes challenges and want to talk about some of those uh, and stuff that you think a lot about. But before we get into that, what what is the day in the life of, uh, of a VP of renewable energy at DP look like? <laughs> yeah, um, you know it seems to change every day, uh, which I love. Um, but I think it, you know if I thought think in the broadest terms, I I look at my role. You know, you can be on the business and you can be in the business, um, and I tend to spend a lot of my time being on the business, which is where I'm thinking, you know, my priorities are my team. Are they safe? How is their well-being? Have I given them the right direction and understanding how important their work is to our success? Do they have the tools they need to succeed? Um, and how that manifests itself is um, team meetings throughout the day where I can check in with the team, see how they're doing, get updates on progress, answer questions, and provide continuous feedback. feedback. And then I'd say the balance of my day beyond that is generally thinking big picture, strategic. What, what could derail our plans? 
what are the trends that we need to understand in order to be successful in the future and such. And what what are some of the biggest challenges that you and your team deal with day in and, and day out? Well, um, right now, I would say it is development of projects in um, is incredibly challenging, both in the state and even beyond that globally. Um, we are certainly seeing a lot more pushback in certain areas of the state around siting of renewable energy projects. Um, they have concerns about what what is this going to look like in our community. They've you know they've uh, you know lived there for a long time and and um, have been generally very successful agricultural communities. And so a renewable energy developer like us shows up with these big ideas and and um, it's it creates a lot of uncertainty for them. So. Um, we want to, we spend a lot of time with the communities, helping them understand here's what the benefits could be for your community. And, uh, we never force ourselves any, into anywhere. Um, if it's not right for a community, we understand. Um, so we spend a lot of time thinking about, and then just globally, there is a ton of uncertainty right now, particularly in solar, which is where we're seeing, you know, an, an, um, an awful lot of unrest, I would say around the globe. It really started with the department of commerce's anti-tariff um, circumvention investigation uh, that kicked off here over a year ago now. Um, I think for for good reason, they, they initiated that investigation, um, but it really threw the solar panel industry into a tailspin. And we are still dealing with the remnants of that from a solar panel supply perspective. And then I would say last but not least, is uh, a labor force, a skilled labor force to build uh, these projects. We're going to go through a, a pretty incredible transformation of our energy portfolio. Now, this isn't just DTE. This is the United States for sure, and um, you know, globally, um, generally speaking. Uh, and we just don't have enough of a, enough folks with the skilled capabilities uh, to be able to do that. And so. Those are the things that uh, keeps me up at night and the things that we spend an awful lot of time trying to figure out how do we solve these challenges. And um, ultimately, the goal is to have a, a clean, uh, reliable and, and affordable um, energy portfolio for our customers. Yeah, so you so you obviously you kind of hit on the uh, development side of things, challenges there, supply chain and, and labor. Um, what about like on, on the development side for... Um, let's say there's there's a new project that you guys are developing, and um, what are some of the concerns just within the communities? And then how do you combat that? Like, what can you maybe speak to some of those benefits that you guys talk a lot about? Yeah, well, I think first and foremost, as I mentioned, most of these communities are been largely are largely agricultural. Um, you need, you know, for utility scale wind and solar, you're talking thousands and thousands of acres that. Um, generally needs to be relatively flat and cleared and no wetlands. And so it's largely farmland. So we first try and find non-farmland and then we look for low, lower yielding farmland. Uh, that's what we try and prioritize around. Um, and then it's really starting to work with the landowners in the community to socialize, Hey, we're looking at doing a potential project here. Um, let us spend time with you educating you on solar and wind and the benefits. The benefits can be real and tangible. Um, they create a lot of jobs, uh, which is generally welcome in a lot of these communities. Uh, it also creates a strong tax base um, that allows them to do some things that they otherwise would not have been able to do. 
Um, but it changes the landscape for sure. Um, there, we have certainly seen a number of farming families that have been farming for decades, if not over, you know, over a century easily, that uh, the, the new generation doesn't want to take over the farm. And so they're, you know, they look to renewables as a, you know, potential opportunity um, for their land, or um, at least for some parts of their land to, to generate a revenue stream. We pay the landowners um, a, a land payment, if you will, um, for production at those different sites. And then uh, wind and solar have, they're, they're two very different development projects. With wind, the turbine itself doesn't take up a lot of land mass per se. You can still farm 95 plus percent of a farmland once a wind turbine's gone up on it. Uh, you just have a little access road to get to it, and then there's the wind turbine footprint. Uh, but it's the view shed. Um, folks may not want to look at the turbines. Um, sometimes you can have sound and flicker issues that have to be managed, and all of that is generally done up front when you design the wind park. And then solar is very different in that you're asking a farmer and or potentially community to change the complete landscape of what their community looks like. A farmer is making a decision to no longer farm on that portion of the land, which could be all of their land. Um, and so um, very different dynamic across both that you have to, again, work with the communities and the landowners and um, you know, try and promote to them what the benefits are of those projects and give them, really just give them the information um, that they can use that will help them inform their decision, whether it's to do renewables or not do renewables. And 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 so you mentioned uh, the supply chain challenges uh, specifically with with solar. Um, I'd imagine. I mean, we we talk a lot about this with customers as well. They're obviously it's no secret they're that they're that's affected um, all of clean energy and wind. But do you um, do you see the challenges? Are they just as big in, in wind, or is it because um, the solar growth is so large for you guys that? That that um, that they're greater and and solar. Can you maybe speak a little bit to to that? I would say it's far more challenging um, for solar right now, really um, due to panels. Um, the Inflation Reduction Act uh, went a long way to try and onshore slash reshore solar manufacturing, and it's not just panels. Um, it goes all the way back to polysilicon. Um, is trying to reshore that in, onto the United, you know, on the you know into the US, but that's gonna take two to three years, if not more, to be able to replace um, what we're trying to prevent from getting into the country um, for various reasons. One, it's it's dumping, um, it's the use of forced labor in Xinjiang province of China, you know, all those things. So I think what the United States is doing is the right thing. And uh, but it's going to it's going to take time to to duplicate uh, the the supply base that you need. I don't believe wind is really impacted. It's certainly not by the the Department of Commerce's investigation. But solar was growing very quickly, um, and wind started to struggle. And so you don't have really near the wind manufacturing capability uh, that you had just five ten years ago. So, you know, we see a shortage from that perspective. We're starting to see that come back right now. Certainly, um, the increasing interest in offshore wind is helping drive uh, the large wind manufacturers to um, ramp up their thinking around 
you know, greater production, larger turbines, larger blades, and all those things. So I think we see challenges in both spaces, probably more in solar right now. Um, but both of them, I would say, are you know three to five years away from what I would call normalization, um, to where the uh, to where at least personally I would feel the United States is going to be able to achieve its goals of decarbonization again, at least do so affordably uh, as we as we go through that build out. You uh, you mentioned offshore offshore wind. Mm -hmm. uh, do you think we're going to see offshore in the in the Great Lakes at some point? Ooh, I don't know. Um, we are we are assessing it right now. Um, I've got a small team who's looking at that. And when you when you look at the amount of renewable energy that we would need to decarbonize, and it depends on what you believe about small modular nuclear reactors and um, natural gas with carbon capture sequestration, hydrogen, things of that nature. But um, there just isn't enough land mass to get there with with renewables, true, you know, or traditional renewables. And I'm going to I'm going to use wind and solar generally. There obviously are a lot more, um, but wind and solar would be the predominant ones. Um, even with the with battery storage, um, you just start running out of land mass, and you start running out of places that people are willing to have those assets in their backyard. And uh, so it's hard to see how we get there fully right now unless something significantly changes from policy and permitting and zoning perspective. And so going offshore will probably be needed if, if something doesn't change. So uh, I, you know, there was a push to do some offshore wind up off of Lake Michigan, I wanna say four or five years ago now. And that that received a ton of a ton of pushback um, from the local communities. Um, I don't believe the developer went about things the right way uh, to, to even to begin with at all. You know, before we even think about starting to develop anywhere in the state, we start engaging with the community right out of the gate. Um, we don't want to be where we're not, you know, where folks don't see the benefit of renewables or don't see how it fits with the communities and some developers don't do that. So I hope for wind, I think we need to engage the stakeholders early. That's going to be absolutely key um, and bring them into the dialogue early on and have them in the design uh, discussion phases, et cetera. And that's the only way it's going to happen. But honestly, I think it's a coin toss, Josh, at this point. I do. I think it's 50, 50. Yeah, I know we've been talking about it as an industry for for a long time, and and certainly would be would be cool to see. And um, I think especially over the course of the next couple of years, as the U.S. offshore wind really starts to take off, um, maybe we'll we'll start to see some more more momentum. But mm -hmm. um, so just I, I want to spend a couple of minutes, maybe if you could, we talked a bit about development and and some of the the challenges there, but. Um, could you maybe speak to just the challenges and opportunities in um, wind O and M and or or asset management? And um, so once these these projects are are kind of post post COD, making sure that the the, the turbines last their their useful life. We'd love to hear kind of um, how things are going and and some of the challenges that you face, and and then also opportunities. Yeah, uh, great question. So our first. Wind Park uh, went into service in 2010, 
Um, and so now we're at kind of that 12, 13 year mark. And so, uh, you know, and since then, like I say, we're around our own portfolios, well over 2000 megawatts. And then we've got PPAs with um, uh, some of the large IPPs across the U.S. who have been great partners, folks like NextEra, Invenergy. Um, we did a couple of, I'm going to call them joint ventures. It wasn't legally a joint venture, but joint development projects with them, if you will, um, where we were able to work with them to learn, you know, best practices around O&M and um, just um, all the aspects of, of ownership. And so I would say the first five years, anybody that gets into wind is going to be on the steep end of the learning curve. Uh, and so, um, you know, so we went through our share of, um, you know, startup challenges, nothing outside of what the industry normally sees. Um, blade, uh, blade failures was a big one. Um, and there are some things you obviously can do, uh, to prevent that, that we've learned and employed. I think sky specs has been absolutely core to that. Um, I think we, you know, we started using your drone technology, uh, very early on and, um, outside of, uh, gearbox problems, you know, you have some challenges with pitch it, pitch motors and whatnot, but it's generally, uh, nothing like, you know, gearbox failures. Um, the turbine blades are the absolute key. Um, and it's, it's very difficult. You break a wind turbine blade. You can't just go find any other wind turbine blade. It has to be one that matches the weighting of the other two blades that are on that turbine. And it's taken us sometimes months and months to find the right blade. And it always seems to be on the other side of the world. <laughs> and, so, <laughs> and so now you're, you know, you're carting this thing all around and having to put it up. So, so we've gotten a lot smarter with that. A lot of things we're doing now, we're doing, you know, in the air, in the sky blade repairs, again, supported by your sky spec technology, um, identifying those issues early on um, so that we get ahead of any, any major failures. But now we've got to where, um, our inventories are right for the things that we know that are going to fail. We don't inventory blades. Uh, that's one that's hard, hard thing to inventory, but we inventory just about everything else. So we've got our inventory, right? We've got the ability to do up tower work on gearboxes and all those types of things. Now we've got a great, great team of, uh, wind technicians that have really come from all across the country and brought that best practices to us. So right now our, our availability for our wind turbines uh, is generally in the top, top quintile, uh, or, or top decile, um, consistently, um, year over year now, but it's taken us, you know, it, it takes time to get there. Yeah, that, no, that's, that's, that's awesome to hear. You, you mentioned that a lot of your projects are in year, year 12 or in year 13, um, is repowering every part, ever part of the discussion or, or strategy, or, um, is mm -hmm. it something that comes up? Big time. Nope. We are spending uh, an awful lot of time looking at repowering right now. We see that as a huge opportunity for wind. Um, and then, and certainly the next evolution of our wind portfolio is you'll, you'll likely see much more repowering from a capacity perspective than you will see new installs. Um, and some of that has to do with um, just community acceptance um, getting saturated a bit, but the larger uh, the ability to, to repower to a larger unit uh, obviously increases energy output, um, but can also allow you to reduce the number of turbines inside of a wind farm uh, footprint, um, which improves view shed and things of that nature. So 
yeah, repowering is very high on our priority list, and yeah, you'll you'll probably be seeing us uh, start to implement that sooner rather than later. Very cool. Um, kind of pivoting a little bit here, but um, if the, if there was one gaping technology hole you could fill in the industry that would make your life easier, what what would it be? <laughs> cool. Um, <laughs> I would say thinking longer term, it's going to be long duration storage is going to be absolutely critical um, to really allow wind and solar and other intermittent renewable resources um, to 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 truly uh, come to fruition uh, to the scale that they ultimately will need to be to to completely decarbonize. So we're watching that very closely. Um, You know, we're starting to spend a lot of time in batteries right now. And uh, we've got one of our first projects uh, that's uh, that's underway with a lot more here in the years to come that we're expecting to do, um, you know, measured in the, you know, gigawatts uh, level. And so the longer duration you can get, the more benefits we'll be able to get as our renewable portfolio grows, as, you know, solar starts to produce um, on the edges of, you know, when it's needed versus having to curtail it, being able to transmit that over into a battery. And, you know, Michigan's fortunate. We have one of the largest batteries in the world right now sitting on the West Coast, which is the Ludington Pump Storage facility, which uh, we and we own uh, along with Consumers Energy, the other in, large in-state uh, investor-owned utility. Um, and we're using, we've been using that for ever since wind came online back in 2009, 2010 timeframe to, to fill that reservoir at night with wind that's not needed on the grid and, uh, and then discharge it during the day when power prices are, are a peak. So we need more of that long duration type technology. Are there, you guys look at, are there like hybrid plants coming online? So uh, wind, solar, storage, all, all in one facilities, that stuff that kind of comes across your desk or any any plans there? Yeah, for sure. We, anywhere we, where we have wind parks right now, we're doing, uh, we either are doing or will be building solar underneath that. And then we will, uh, because you get to, you get to utilize the interconnect, um, which one allows you to, Avoid having to go through a lengthy interconnect process, which can take over three years now. Um, you can get through the interconnect process much quicker. You've already got a substation there and controls equipment that you can tack on as a, a solar facility. Um, and then same same for batteries. So we do see benefits in that. There's some challenges with how MISO gives you capacity credit for those assets. And I think that's going to have to be worked through so that um, you're also getting capacity value for those assets to help with the affordability for customers. But yeah, that's absolutely, uh, we have multiple multiple projects that are um, in the design phase right now that are going to do just what you described. They'll be wind, solar, and battery. And so early, early on in the discussion, you mentioned uh, labor, uh, labor shortages and, and that being, being a challenge. Um, can you maybe speak to like what, what DTE is, is doing to, to try to get ahead of that and also how technology may play into everything in the, in the future to help help scale uh, clean, clean energy? Yeah, let me take the, uh, the first one as far as what we're doing from a labor force perspective. Uh, we spend an awful lot of time. We have a team just dedicated to that. We work very closely with the engineering, procurement, and construction companies, uh, particularly in Michigan. 
uh, to give them line of sight of what we think, what our, what, what our build is going to look like uh, so that they can start planning. Um, and to the extent that we can enter into longer term agreements with them, it gives them line of sight um, and more confidence and comfort in going out and doing permanent hiring if they know that they're going to have uh, eight, 10 plus years of work uh, for their workforce. Um, so that in the that one drives demand for the um, for uh, for those folks seeking those types of jobs, and then uh, it also drives down cost. Uh, right now, we're actually having you know these construction firms are having to pay per diems for labor to come in from out of the state to build projects in Michigan, it's, and that's going to continue until we can uh, have our own homegrown uh, folks. Um, DTE spends time in, starting in the high schools to get young talent um, acquainted with or at least introduced to, hey, this is what this is what wind and solar is all about. And this is what the construction jobs look like. This is what an operations jobs look like. And to the extent that there's interest, we can then direct them to the trade schools who we are working closely with to create programming so that uh, this young talent can get their degree or their, their certifications and 12, 18 months and be out working on the job and earning uh, a great living, uh, right? You know, a year, year and a half out of high school, you know, making, you know, $60,000 a year plus uh, starting out and with the line of sight to a long-term career, uh, we believe is really attractive. And I think so us, us being out telling that story uh, to, to the high school aged talent, uh, has been really critical and will be critical to our success. Yeah, it's something that comes up a lot for us on on, on the wind side too. With um, a lot of these big projects in North America that have gone gone online, and um, there's no no shortage, as you mentioned, of of blade issues and challenges out there. Um, and it is a skill that. Um, I mean, frankly, there's just not that many blade engineers out there and being able to work with uh, the trades, trade schools and, and help uh, uh, train and, and, and scale the industry is a, is, a, is a challenge. And there's obviously a lot of, a lot of effort from um, kind of bringing in talent from, from overseas and a lot of the learnings over, over in Europe on, on the blade side, especially as it relates to, to offshore. It's stuff that we as an industry are going to have to have to learn, but um, it's, it's critical to continue to work with, with several. I think in Michigan, there's, there's a couple like MIAD, MIAD and yep. County yeah um yeah kamazoo um and and um the uh henry ford uh we've been working with them to put together a program as well so certainly the um the trade schools have taken taken note uh this is a huge opportunity and and it's really just it's getting the interest of the the young talent early on and kind of opening their eyes to here's what's available. It's exciting. And they say, we, we spent a lot of time with the schools um, going around and, and just talking about and answering questions and, and trying to promote it as a, as a great place to have a career. Yeah, absolutely. Um, what about, what about the IRA? Can you maybe speak to what that means for, for DTE or is it something that you are, you guys are still trying to unpack a bit? Um, but love if you could just speak on that for, for a minute. <laughs> Yeah, the uh, Inflation Reduction Act, from a lot of perspectives, was a game changer um, for um, renewables, and so we're we're pursuing all of the opportunities 
uh, that were that availed themselves in that. A lot of it is production tax credits, extension, and investment tax credits, and giving giving developers and utilities like us different options on how to monetize that to make the most sense for our customers was probably one of the biggest benefits that came out of that. Um, the, the usage of the tax credits up until the IRA were somewhat limited. They were very effective, um, but still somewhat limited for how utilities could use tax credits versus independent power producers. Um, and the IRA really changed that. And uh, that's gonna, that created a really good outcome um, for our customers, for sure. So yeah, we're looking at it from not just in a renewable perspective, but clean energy as well. The carbon capture sequestration now looks very interesting. Certainly there's a lot of work to get done to decide if that's even the right thing for the state and um, and what that would look like. Um, but that's something that we're looking at pretty significantly right now as well. Awesome. Well, um, I guess last question here. Um, is there anything you wish we would have asked you or you think is really important for our listeners to, to understand about the work that you're doing? Um, I think we, I think we covered it all, Josh. I can't think of anything uh, else that I would want to share just to, just to reiterate, um, you know, renewables is going to play a, a huge role in uh, the United States future as we transition away from uh, the more heavy carbon technologies. Uh, we've got a real opportunity to lead from the front here, uh, which I think we're doing from a lot of perspectives. Um, but the, it's uh, it's gonna it's continue to be a challenge. Um, we have no shortage of shortages of challenges. So I would just encourage folks to um, start learning as much as they can about renewables. And, um, take a look at you know the pros and the cons, and you know take you know have an informed decision when you're starting to think about well is this a good thing or or not. Um, just do it with an informed outlook. Absolutely. Well, Chuck, I had had a blast, and um, also too before we part, want to want to say um, really thank you and, and and your team for for being a, a key partner of ours, especially as a, a Michigan based based startup company here. It's been been awesome to to work with you guys, and also super cool to to see all the the clean energy growth in, in Michigan and see you guys leading leading the way there. Yeah, I appreciate that, Josh. It's something we we think a lot about our supply chain team. Um, we try, you know, we spend over two and a half billion dollars with Michigan-based suppliers last year, DT Electric as a utility. And so um, that's something that is a matter of pride for us to be able to create jobs in the state. You know, um, Ben Tower, who's not too far from you, um, you know, being able to work with them to get their manufacturing facility located here. And we're using their wind blade, you know, their, their, their towers, you know, and a lot of our wind, wind projects. Um, and we're trying to do similar type things in solar right now as well. So, um, yeah, so an awful lot of opportunity just beyond installing renewable energy assets in the state. We have the opportunity to attract the manufacturing jobs here that are going to create the next generation of electric generation facilities like wind and solar. And so that's a big focus of ours. And certainly uh, working with, with you all has been, been a lot of fun to see you uh, grow and prosper. Thanks for listening to this episode of Climate Chronicles brought to you by SkySpecs. We hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please subscribe to our podcast so you can be the first to know when we release the latest episodes. If you really liked it, make sure to give us a five-star review. See you next time.